Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I live in this uh, neighborhood called Pico Robertson. It's um, an area of Los Angeles, and it's just, it's just this wonderful kind of like little shtetl, like... In the, in, in the middle of modern L.A. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, like, Jewish life that happens here. And, and um, anyway, I just wanted to tell you a story. And th- this story really doesn't, doesn't have a point just to, other than just to convey the flavor of kind of like daily life out here. So I'm just kind of presenting it that, in, the, in that spirit just to, just to kind of paint a little picture. Um, so it was... Uh, it was almost Shabbos, and uh, I was going to the mikveh, and sitting on the, sitting on the street was this homeless person who's new, new in the neighborhood. I haven't seen him in the neighborhood. And I just, if I were to describe him, um, I actually took a picture of him. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll include the picture in, in, <laughs> when I send this out. But he had a beautiful, angelic face, and, uh, but... But Nebuch, you know, unfortunately homeless, you know, so he's, he's sitting on the sidewalk. He has a kind of a, a, a longish, unkempt beard and kind of longish hair. He's dressed kind of in rags, has his possessions on the sidewalk around him. Young, looks like, I don't know, early 30s, late 20s, something like that. But, you know, the, the beard and the look makes you look older than you are. And what really kind of like struck me was was the, the yarmulke that he was wearing. It wasn't like a regular yarmulke. It wasn't even a circle. It was, it was, a, it was a cut-out piece of cloth, like a square cut-out piece of cloth that he had pinned to his head. Like the, the yarmulke itself was like a rag. And it was just so precious just to, just to see this, this, this person, you know? And um, anyway... I'm going to tell you more about my interaction with him, but 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 first I have to sort of like uh, tell you a different story. <laughs> so, when um, many years ago, when when Reb Shlomo Karlbach was alive, uh, he, when he came out to Los Angeles, he would he would he would stay with the with Doctor Richie and and Lillian Richie, um, who are alive and well in Bayit Vagan in in in, in Jerusalem. And but they used to live in Los Angeles at 613 North Las Palmas. They told me that they, they bought the house because of the address, right? <laughs> so something beautiful there. And and Reb Shlomo would, would, would stay there and he would he would he would teach in the living room, you know, and, and with his guitar and give over like the deepest tours in the world for hours and hours at a time. And you know, periodically you never knew when he was going to be in LA, but if you found out, sometimes you'd miss it and then it would be horrible. But if you found out, you'd go over to the Richies and everything like that. So, so I remember sitting there in their very sort of cozy, comfortable living room, and and what always struck me was their son Zivi would be sitting in the corner of the room, uh, and he was young, maybe he was maybe I don't know, maybe eleven years old or something like that, and he'd be sitting in this big, this big uh, armchair, kind of like kind of like a sofa style armchair. And he'd almost be disappearing in this large chair. And he wouldn't say a word. And 
he would be sitting there for hours. And, and many times I would come and he would be there and he'd be there for the entire event and he would be sitting in that chair, not saying a word. And he's a young boy. And I used to always look at him and I think to myself, what is he going to do with this information? How is he absorbing this? Like, how is this going to affect him? And so many years later, he started putting out books, collected books of the teachings of Rabbi Shlomo, when really no one else was doing it. And he made them very small little booklets so that they were accessible. And he would take like snippets, like what Rabbi Shlomo would call cash torahs, right? Like, like just things that you could have in your pocket at all times. And, um, and he would distribute these and they'd be available in different bookshops and things like that. But, but they, were, they were wonderful, wonderful um, collections and distillations. Anyway, so, so Zivi just put out a collection of all of the smaller books. So it's a, it almost looks like a phone book. And there's 10 books inside this one book. And he's making it, he's selling it now on Amazon for $12.50. He's not making a penny from it. And he said he made the price so low so that you would buy multiple copies and then just give them out. Okay, so I, when I saw that, I bought 10 copies, right? And uh, I'm slowly giving them out now. And um, anyway, i just tell you another story. It's in the beginning of this book, what, um, what Zivi Ritchie wrote. This is a story that Reb Shlomo told over a period of many, many years. But what's interesting about this story is Zivi says that he had a dream, and in his dream, Reb Shlomo was telling him this story. Okay, but this was a known story. And he knew that it was a known story, but he dreamt that Reb Shlomo was telling him this story. So many people don't know this story. It's an amazing historical event. And I'll tell you this story. This was what he dreamt. So at the height of the... Um, of, of, of the Jews living in Spain, right? So this is, you know, 15th century. But, you know, they reached tremendous heights culturally and religiously and things like that over the years in Spain, over a several hundred year period. And um, anyway, they had a meeting. It was very, very big news, which is that the Sultan, remember the Sultan was the king of Turkey Turkey at that point controlled the land of Israel. They had a, a vast empire, Turkey. Um, the Sultan was willing to sell the real estate of the land of Israel. And the Jews of Spain had the money to buy it. And so they, they gathered together, the, the community gathered together in Spain to say the Sultan wants to sell Israel and we have the money to buy it. And one person raised their hand and said, well, you know, this is very big. I mean, you know, you know remember the, the Jews had been exiled from Israel at that point for maybe 1,400 years, right? So this is giant. And the person raises their hand and says, this is such a big event like, before we do it, we really should have a sign from heaven that this is the proper thing to do. 
And the person said, a sign from heaven, the Sultan wants to sell the land of Israel and we have the money to buy it. What more sign do you need than that? But because the debate had already started, you know, people were giving over their different opinions and they, they, they made the following resolution, which was, we'll wait a year. We'll wait one year, and if the sign comes over this year, then we'll know that this was the right thing to do. The next year was 1492, and the Jews were expelled from Spain. And this was a once in 500 year opportunity, but because we didn't act, it disappeared. You know, one of the things that I heard Reb Shlomo say one time was, when the gates are open, you have to go through them. Right? He's talking about proper opportunities. He's not, this is not a, um, you know, permission to be impulsive or reckless. He's talking about when a real opportunity comes your way. When the gates are open, you have to go through and I'm telling you something, that saved my life. That teaching saved my life because when I met my wife, we got married in a pretty short period of time. But it wasn't an impulsive move, you know? You know, people, this is one of those things that unless you've experienced it, it just sounds made up. But I can tell you, since I experienced it, it's real. Sometimes you meet someone and you just know, and they know, and you just know. And you, you don't have to, you don't have to, date forever and ever and ever and ever. You, you know. Okay. Anyway, that, that happened to me. But to, to get married, that's like such a giant life decision, right? But I thought to myself, when the gates are open, you have to go through. And the gates were open. And so I went through. And the greatest decision Right? This is now, even though we dated for really a few weeks, um, 28 years later now, right? So, so, so Zivi had this dream that Reb Shlomo was telling him this story, and he woke up and he said, I've got I've to make a move, I've got to do something. And so he decided to take all of the books that he had written thus far and to collect them in one large book and to make it essentially available at cost, at for, which is basically for free from the author's standpoint since he's making no money from it, right? Okay, so I've got a few copies in the, in, in the trunk of my car and I see this homeless guy on the street. <laughs> And I see his yarmulke, which is unbelievable. I'm telling you, it's like a, 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 a cut piece of cloth, like pinned to his head. And I, I thought of uh, that, I heard from Reb Shlomo one time that in Kutsk, right, one of the great Hasidic dynasties, they only stood for two people in Kutsk. One was the Rebbe, and the other person was someone so poor that he had a leaf for a yarmulke. He wore a leaf on his head for a yarmulke. And I saw this guy, and I, I, I thought of that, that person. So anyway, I, I gave him some money, and I'm holding the, the book, which I tell you is, is like a small telephone book, right? And I'm starting to walk to the mikveh, thinking, you know, in the, 
At the mikveh, there are going to be people who are going to want to read this book for sure, and I can give it to, to someone who's there. And I get about 10 steps past this guy, and I think to myself, ah, maybe I should give the book to him. But I think, like, does he want the book? Is he even Jewish? I, I, I don't know. And so I, I continued to walk, and then I thought to myself, but, but what if he, what if he wants the book? <laughs> what if he'll read the book? I mean, he's sitting on a sidewalk. He's got time to read. If he likes the book, he's, who knows what kind of effect this could have on him. So it was very hard to turn around, but I made myself turn around, and I walked back to him, and I, I you know, of course I was speaking to him in a very soft, gentle voice. And I said to him, I said, I said, do you read? And he said, you know, he nodded his head, yeah, yeah, I read. I said, oh, okay. I said, are you Jewish? And he said, he just kind of looked at me with like a very kind of just beautiful questioning kind of look. And he didn't answer the question. So I thought, okay, that it wasn't a yes, it was, but it wasn't a no. <laughs> I said, would, I said, would you like, I said, would you like this book? And the book has a very, very colorful cover. It's a very kind of like exciting looking book. The back is very exciting looking. And he looks at me and he says, what's it about? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's about peace and love. And he said, oh, okay. And then he reaches into one of his bags. He has some bags around him, you know, on the sidewalk. He reaches in one of his bags and he takes out a, a, uh, a pair of socks, you know, like when you ball up one sock into the other sock. Right? And I thought to myself, this is unbelievable. He's, he doesn't feel as though he's appropriately dressed. So he's going to put on socks before he starts learning Torah. Like this is like a high level of Yerushamayim, right? Awe of heaven. And then I see, wait a second, no, no, no. He, he didn't take out the socks to put them on. He's reaching into the socks. And I hear some coins like jingling. And I thought, oh, he thinks I'm trying to sell him the book. But then he puts the socks away, and I, I realized that was wrong also. <laughs> and then he says to me, he reaches toward his duffel bag, and he says, if it's a gimel, the answer is yes. And he pulls out a giant dreidel. <laughs> and I mean like, probably like six inches long, like a three-inch stem, and then a three-inch body, like a blonde wood, pretty giant dreidel. And he spins the dreidel, and it doesn't land on Gimel. And he looks up at me and goes, <laughs> like, like a look that conveys, sorry, what can I do? <laughs> I tried. I did my part. <laughs> and then I walked on. 
that's the end of the story. And then sure enough, walking into the mikveh, that, at, right at that time was someone who's a, like a total Reb Shlomo Chassid and learner and was thrilled beyond belief to get the book. So, anyway, just, just a snapshot from life in the neighborhood, right? Like that story could have been from, from when? A hundred years ago? Two hundred years ago? Right? More? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, anyway. I want to, uh, I want to talk about some, some, some deep stuff. And we, we have, we, we have here the, sort of the, the climactic, the climactic conclusion of the whole story of Yosef and his brothers. And everybody knows the story, but, but, but basically the brothers feel threatened by Yosef and they sell him into slavery. Of course, <laughs> Yosef meant them no, no harm at all, but, but they felt like he posed an existential threat to them. And so they sell him they, they, they sell him into slavery. And of course, everybody knows the story. Yosef becomes known for one of his many talents, which is to interpret dreams, which is, you know, like almost on a prophetic level, he has this godly gift. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams that there's going to be a massive famine all over Egypt. And Pharaoh says, who is as wise as you who knows not only that this is coming, but also knows how to properly manage this and to store up food in time of famine during the good years so that we have food during the bad years. You're the man to run the whole operation. You'll be number two in all of Egypt, just under me. Okay. So, so, so Yosef is, is running Egypt. The other brothers come and, and they need to get food and and, and basically what happens is Yosef holds his brother, Benjamin, prisoner. And uh, basically what he's trying to do is to get the, the brothers to do tshuva for having sold him into slavery. So the Rambam talks about five levels of tshuva and the highest level of, of return, of fixing a past mistake, is to be in a situation that you were in, but to do something differently this time. So he's creating the same situation or a parallel situation when they sold Yosef. Are they going to put themselves out when another brother is trapped? That, that's what he wants to know. And of course, the brothers rise to the occasion and they do the right thing and they're able to repair this event that they did with Yosef. And Yosef has just been creating this whole long situation just for this one moment. But in order for this one moment to take place, Yehuda, who's the leader, and I just have to tell you this because it breaks my heart every time I say this, but I, I just think that it's so important that everybody knows this. When the brothers were in this situation, it's a Rashi, you have to look at the Rashi. The brothers said to Yehuda, because this was going to basically... The idea that Benjamin, Benjamin had been taken captive now, 
and they didn't know that this is their brother who's like orchestrating all these events. Their father's going to die. It's literally going to kill their father, Jacob. Like everything, the whole Jewish project, basically, is about to implode and disappear. Like everything is waiting for this moment. Can Yehuda convince this dictator, who he doesn't know is his brother, to let his other brother go? Right? It's all leading up to this moment. And, you know, just to, just to paint a picture for a moment, we have to realize just how incredibly terrifying this situation was. Now, every once in a while, I don't know if you know much about Egyptian, like, antiquities and things like that. I, I don't. But, you know, over the years, you can't help but to escape seeing pictures of ancient Egypt and things like that. Recently, I was online and I saw some of these these statues, right? They're the size of tall buildings. Do, do, do you understand what we're talking about? Tall buildings, and they're these giant, like, seated humanoid figures with, like, dog heads and, like, outrageous, like, really culty, dark stuff. And you have to understand that it's not like, okay, you know, well, I live in... New York, where there are a lot of skyscrapers, and that's a very tall, peculiar statue. (laughs) But the height of it isn't terrifying. But now imagine what the landscape of the ancient world was. It was, I mean, listen, when the, just to give you just some context, okay? When the Israeli government rescued the Jews from Ethiopia. This is, you know, just a few, few years ago, okay? The Ethiopians, you ready for this? Like, they have to get onto the airplane, right? They had never seen steps. I mean, you talk about ancient civilization and, and, and how primitive it was. Up until the modern era, there are people who hadn't seen steps. Now imagine like what these wild palaces of ancient Egypt look like. We're like five, ten story high idols. It was scary. That's the point I'm trying to make. It was scary. And then when This moment, setting up this moment over here, again, Yosef, their brother, is trying to create a situation where the other brothers can redeem themselves. But in order to redeem themselves, they have to to be in a pretty dark situation. So he's got to create that dark situation. So what does he do? He, He gives them food. He sends them away. He has someone plant his silver goblet in the bag of Benjamin, right? Benjamin. And then all of a sudden he sends them off. Then he sends like basically police officers after them. Actually, it was his son Menasha comes after them, opens up the bag, says, you stole the cup of Yosef, right? I mean, his name was something else, but, and they haul them back in and, and Yosef starts screaming at them, telling them, I have the powers of divination, Right? Who did you think you could get away? So again, I'm giving you that 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 fact because 
not only was the architecture of this place like alt sci-fi horror show, right? But they projected like this 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 idea that they were all telekinetic guys who could see into the distance and into you know with x-ray vision and all the rest, right? They they wanted you to live in a state of terror. That was part of how they they maintained their control over the populace. Now, by the way, I want to make an aside here because this is, I think, something very interesting. I, I only heard it once, and I wish I knew who told me this. This is, sounds like a very mundane kind of piece of information that I'm telling you. But if you understand it more deeply, you'll realize this is giant, okay? You see, in most religions, and especially the religions of the ancient world, and especially Egypt, they had a priestly class. And these priests kept everyone in ignorance. Like if you wanted to get into the afterlife, you basically had to go to them and they knew all of the secrets. But you didn't know any of the secrets. Now with this in mind, let's appreciate what Sefer Vayikra is, also known as the book of Leviticus. When you get up to Sefer Vayikra, it's pages and pages of this is how you bring this sacrifice and this is what you do with this animal and this is what you put on the altar and this is how much blood goes into this type of bowl and gets sprinkled against this type. In other words, the whole playbook, this secret playbook is published for absolutely everyone to read. Do, do, do you understand that? Now, now when, when, we, when we're learning through the, the weekly Torah portion, we love the narratives. And then when we get up to that, and especially like the architecture of the Mishkan and things like that and the orders of the offerings, we tune out and we go, God, what are you doing to us? Right? Because there's such a disconnect. Because there's no narrative there. And it just seems like arcane detail. But if you put it in the historical perspective, just take five steps back, you realize, you know, Today, like one of the big words in government, right? This is like a very sort of like cool current word is transparency, right? Like corporate transparency, government transparency, right? One of the cool things that Obama did when he got elected president was he put his meeting, his meeting book, his appointment book online so that anyone in the world, anyone in America could click online and see who he was meeting with at what time every single day. That's, that's transparency, or at least as much as you're going to get from the White House, right? But, but the point is, is that God is doing this type of transparency, which was the opposite of what everyone else was doing in the ancient world. Okay. So, and the reason was because they wanted to use religion as a way to keep the masses uninformed and enslaved. Fear and ignorance, right? Now, Judaism is like the opposite of that, right? Judaism is like publishing all of its secrets. Like, here it is. You know, Reb Shlomo said something so unbelievable one time, which was, well, many times, but 
He says there are two types of secrets. There's one type of secret where I tell you and you know. Like if I were to tell you like some gossip. You see that guy over there? Let me tell you something about him, right? So that's one type of secret. I tell you and then you know. Then there's another type of secret where I tell you and you still don't know. <laughs> let me tell you. Let me give you an example of that. God created the world out of nothingness. All right, now you know the secret. But wait, how did he create the world out of nothingness? You still don't know. You know and you still don't know. Right? Those are the deepest secrets. So, so anyway, the Talmud is explaining everything in the Torah. The Torah is already telling you the secrets. And then the Talmud is now explaining all the secrets in great detail. And, you know, just since we're talking about the Talmud, I have to tell you that this week, the Jewish people completed the Daf Yomi cycle, which is a, um, something that was initiated by Rabbi um, Mir Shapiro in the 1920s. And uh, all over the world, people were learning the exact same page of Talmud every single day, and it takes you to tell you how massive the Talmud is, it takes you seven and a half years to just go through it if you do a page a day. Seven and a half years. So on January 1st, which is the timing of that is incredible, right? And on January 1st, the, the, the secular new year, we finished the last page. And there were celebrations all over the world including in New York at MetLife Stadium, 90,000 people were there. And then, for those people who didn't want to go all the way to Queens, in Brooklyn, at Barclay Stadium, where, where Barclay Arena, where the New York Nets play basketball, there were another 20,000. Those are just two celebrations that were taking place. And, you know, there's some people who, like, they're, they're great, they're great, thrill in life is to bash the New York Times. Um, I'm not one of those people. However, now I'm going to take the occasion to bash the New York Times. Um, And you have to understand something. I grew up on the Upper West Side of New York, right? 79th and Broadway. My father was a psychologist. In many circles, that would make me a living stereotype. The son (laughs) of a psychologist growing up on the Upper West Side of New York, right? So, so, so anyway, when I would walk into the kitchen, we had this giant pink kitchen, right? It was like one of these like old New York apartment buildings. Actually, when it was built, it's a famous building. It's called the Apthorpe. And when it was built, it was the largest apartment building in the world. <laughs> All right, ready for that? It's a one square block with a courtyard in the middle. It's like one of these grand old New York buildings. And, and we had this giant kitchen, which for some reason was painted pink. So, so, and my father would be sitting at the breakfast table. He was, he had his practice in the house, so he wasn't running anywhere. And my father was a very, very elegant man. He always wore tweed jackets and he was in silk ties or silk bow ties and he smoked a pipe and he was very professorial. He was actually a professor as well. And, you know, just and loved people. He loved people, you know? So anyway, when I would walk into the kitchen, the kitchen would be empty. My father would be 
sitting at his spot by the kitchen table. It was like a rectangular table. And I wouldn't see his face because he would have the New York Times held up, you know, like, like not, not folded over, like the full, the full, like, the full wingspan of the New York Times was like, and so I'd walk in and I would just see the New York Times, like that, that was my father, right? And there would be his cup of tea and he would have a little section of lemon, you know, he liked <laughs> lemon in his tea. And uh, anyway, so, so the New York Times was like, and there would be WQXR was the, the classical radio station, so classical music and the New York Times. That was my upbringing, right? So the New York Times had, had some sort of like, like credibility, like, like real credibility. And anyway, I, I don't really feel the same way about the New York Times anymore. Um, the, the number two man of the New York Times lived two floors above me, Arthur Gelb. So I used to ride the elevator in the morning with, with him. You know, he, you know, more or less ran the New York Times. Okay, so here's the headline. So, so 90,000 people. Here, here's the, t- the headline. You can look it up on the New York Times, okay? 90,000 Jews gather to pray and defy a wave of hate. I thought 90,000 Jews gathered to celebrate seven and a half years of learning one page of Talmud every single day in this worldwide event. Now, in fairness, in fairness, I want to be intellectually honest. Underneath that, this is the sub-headline, but not the bold print headline. I read you the bold print headline. Underneath that, it says, a celebration to end this... To mark the end of a cycle of Talmudic studied, carried an extra meaning in the wake of deadly anti-Semitic attacks. So, I think that this was coming from a good place, and um, you know, I'm not shaking my fist and saying, "Oh, it's anti-Semitic." I'm not. I'm not saying anything like that. That's not the point. My my point is that I feel as though they profoundly miss the point of what this gathering is. Um. Talmud Torah, the study of Torah, it says, Talmud Torah keneged kulam, which means that if you were to put on one side of the scale the study of Torah, and on the other side of the scale the other 612 remaining mitzvot, that they would be equal. That the study of Torah is so great. And not just to get a question answered. We have something called Torah lishma which means Torah for its own sake, meaning that the act of study itself is a transformative experience. The act of study itself is something that brings light and redemption to the world. That that is the headline that got missed. That's what was being celebrated, celebrated. The act of Torah itself as something that's transformative and that is worth investing tremendous amount of life force in. 
you know, Torah scholarship over the years has not really been understood by the world. And unfortunately, this is another reminder that people still don't understand what Torah scholarship is. Um, I'll give you an example. At the time of the... I'm so sorry to uh, interrupt your lesson. I'm very sorry, everyone. Just in case you... The Bima is down. The, the act of Torah study itself is redemptive. Back in the, um, in the Soviet era, uh, they would basically arrest you as a parasite to society if you were just sitting and learning. And the Chovetz Chaim gave the following example. He said, imagine, I might be paraphrasing here, but this is the basic idea. Imagine you, um, you walk into a factory and there's a conveyor belt over here, and off the conveyor belt are coming uh, shoes, okay? And then you walk into another room and there's another conveyor belt, and off that conveyor belt is coming gloves. And you walk into another room and off that conveyor belt is coming belts, okay? You understand the, the, the productivity of the factory, the, what, the pro what the factory is making. Now imagine you walk into the control room there's no conveyor belts. You don't see anything coming out. You just see some machinery. And you say, what is this room? What, what good is this room? And the person responds, this room is keeping all the other rooms going. That's what Talmud Torah is. That's what Torah study is. Torah study is literally driving and fueling creation itself. This is the headline that got missed. So, so we have something in Torah, and there's so many applications to this, but I, I just want to tell you, because the headline didn't get it. The subheadline at least mentioned that it was a celebration of the completion of the cycle of learning. Okay. So, but you have something in Torah called the Iker and the Tuffle. The ikr means the main thing. That's like the meat. The tuffel is something on the side. So for instance, that's like, like if you imagine like, here's the, I don't know, here's, here's the soup, like the chicken, like, like a chicken dish. Like the chicken is the ikr, right? The sauce on the top, that would be the tuffel. That's, that's extra. Okay. There are many examples, and it actually gets kind of complicated in terms of the laws of of, of making blessings, what's the essence and what's, the, what's the, the, the side category, and of course you prioritize the essence. I, I, the reason why I want to explain that to you is because I once heard an amazing definition of tshuva. Tshuva, of course, means return, returning to God, right? Just like, like just wanting just to fix your life, fix the world, everything. So that's, that's tshuva. So how do you return? Like, okay, so this is a big subject. I mean, you know, you can talk your whole life about it. How do you return? And it's, it's, it's a very mysterious process, really. Um, Rabbi Shlomo tells the story of one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's was like really one of the, the great masters of this subject of tshuva. And he had written something like five books on it. And someone came up to him and said, how do you do tshuva? And he said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Because there's such a, you can, you, can, you can study the science of it and the laws of it and everything like that. But for every single person, it's so deeply personal. 
and so specialized that how do you do it, right? How do you do it? So with that in mind, let me just give you this definition that I think is awesome. Let's say you want to change a behavior, right? He says, you know what you do? You take the tuffle and you make it into the ichor. <laughs> or you take the ichor and you make it into the tuffle. In other words, whatever activity, whatever area in your life that you want to change, you have the desire, say, that you're not really implementing, and then you have your main action which you would like to change. So switch them around. Make the main thing that you want to change the side thing, and make the real desire the main thing. Right? Make, make the tuffle the side thing, the ichor. Or make the ichor the tuffle. Both applications. Okay. So, so I want to get back to Parsha's Vayigash and this, this, this confrontation between Yehuda trying to save his brother and Yosef. And I was painting a picture for you about the scariness of ancient Egypt and the fact that they, in addition to it, they wanted to project the idea that they were all magicians and mind readers and, you know, all these things like this. So, so life can be really scary. You know, we have all the modern equivalents of how intimidating life can be. And you can just sort of imagine ancient Egypt where like you live basically in a community that just has tents. There are no buildings, there are no even stairs. And then you journey to this place, which is like outrageous, right? Like 10 story high idols and people who are telling you that they're mind readers and all the rest. And now Yehuda has to stand up basically to the king. He says, you're like Pharaoh, right? So he really had the stature of the king. He has to stand up to him. And of course, he's successful. And here's the point that I want to make. I want to make a bunch of points, but here's the first tangible point for all of our lives right now. Sometimes God makes things very scary for us in our lives because he wants us to be brave. <laughs> Let me say that one more time. Sometimes God makes things very scary for us in our lives because he wants us to be brave and he wants us to have courage. Okay? The point isn't to scare us away. The point of the Egyptians doing all that was to scare people away. But God orchestrated all of that with the, with the knowledge that Yehuda will be successful if he's not scared off, if he has courage, if he's brave enough to approach and to argue his claim. That's a big, that's a big lesson. Because we're so terrified, most of us are so terrified of God that we get... You know, one of the things that I notice, and I'm telling you, you got to, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, so you just got to hear it and make a note of it, and we're going to move on. 
a lot of people are very nihilistic, very fatalistic. They resign themselves to not trying harder. And you ready for this? They call it faith in God. It's really giving up, masquerading as faith. They go, oh, you know what? God runs the world. God will do what he wants. But can I translate with that, what they're really saying? I, I don't believe it. I don't believe in myself. I don't believe that God wants to do it. I'm tired of trying. I give up. I give up. I give up. I give up, but I'm going to call it, I believe. There, there is a role for saying, I've done everything that I can do. But you only get to say, I've done everything I can do, when you've done everything you can do. <laughs> if you haven't done everything you can do yet, or if you just don't believe deeply in God's goodness, then... If you stop, that's not really the best demonstration of faith. It's not really faith the way we're really talking about it. Faith really begins where effort ends. If you're still like in the middle of the effort part, then it's kind of cheating just to stop and say you have faith. Right? So, so I want to tell you something that I think is really interesting about the way Yehuda confronts Yosef. Okay? Because most people begin Parshas Vayigash, and, and Vayigash means to approach, and they're like, okay, here it is. They've taken Benjamin, they've taken Benjamin away. He's being held captive. What are you going to do, Yehuda? Are you, going to, are, you going to, are you going to defy like all of the pyrotechnics, you know, of Egyptian culture? And are you going to stand up to Yosef? Are you going to go and appeal? That's what most people think is happening. But can I tell you something? That's not the scene. That's not the scene. And now we're going to set up the second big practical takeaway for our own lives. If you look at the way the previous week ends, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it for you here. It says, so this is chapter 44, uh, verse 16. Okay, Yosef has just said, do you not realize that a man like me practices divination? Right, he's trying to scare the daylights out of him. And then it says, so, so Yehuda said, this is last week's Parsha. What can we say to my Lord? How can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has uncovered the sins of your servants. Not that they stole, but he means that... Um, Rashi explains that he means that God is punishing us for having sold Yosef. Um, here we are. We were ready to be slaves to my Lord, both me, we, and the one whose hand is, in whose hand the goblet was found. But he replies, no, no, no. I can't imprison all of you. That would be sacrilegious. I'm just going to take the one who stole, who didn't really even steal, right? He was framed. Okay. And then basically that's the end of the conversation. So what, what I want to suggest is the following. Yehuda already approached Yosef. He already tried to engage him and already tried to appeal to him. 
And Yosef ended the conversation. So, so when we get to this week's Parsha, it's not that Yehuda is displaying courage and going up to Yosef. It's a double courage because he's going back to him. And this is a point we've talked about before, but I, I, I want to emphasize it again. If you haven't called someone twice, you haven't called them once. Right? And this goes for emails too. If you haven't emailed them twice, you haven't emailed them once. And, and one of the techniques, and, and I've used this, and, and, and I've heard positive things from other people as well, if you haven't heard back from the person, just put in the subject heading, resending. That's something that, that a couple of people did with me. And as soon as I saw it, I, I like jumped, rough, resending, ah, better answer this right away. And I was not put off. It was not pushy. It was just like the person was just sort of like being like real. Hey, I wrote you. you this is like common decency. You know, can't do it. You can't do it. But, but respond. Right? That's, by the way, this is another just Derek Heretz thing. Just if someone says something to you, respond to them. If someone asks you a question, even if the answer is no, even if, the, even if the answer is, I'm too busy to discuss this, don't think a non-response when someone has asked you something is permissible at all. It's not. It's not permissible. Even if, even if you say, I don't know, or I, you know what, I, I'd love to help you, but I'm too busy right now. Whatever it is, if someone speaks to you, you must respond to them. And, and I'll tell you something that I heard from from Rabbi Shalom Brat, Allah Shalom, um, that maybe he said this in the name of the Ishbetzer, I'm not sure, but he said that when God gave the commandments at Mount Sinai, when he gave the commandment, thou shalt not kill, right? The, the, uh, the people on the lowest spiritual level heard, don't, don't murder. Right? But the people who were on a higher spiritual level heard, don't ignore another person. Right? Because when you ignore someone, then that, that, that that's a, it's a form of killing. You know, I, I was once watching a, it's a, a sitcom Oh, what, what is the one? It was on Fox. It has the word girl in the title. It just ended its run a few. New girl. Yeah, I was watching an episode of that, and someone felt like someone hate, like, does that guy hate me? And, and the person said, here's the test to know if someone hates you. When you ask them a question, they don't respond. That was, I was like, wow. You know, it's like Torah. It's like Torah. So, so don't don't fall into that category. Be 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 sensitive. Okay. Anyway, what what I'm what I'm trying to tell you here is that is that as great as Yehuda's approaching Yosef is, it's even greater than than what it seems at first blush, because he's actually 
been rebuffed by Yosef already, and now he's going back to Yosef. That's incredible. Okay. Now, now I want to go deeper. And I want to say the following. You see, every single person has basically two, let's call it two dimensions right now. You have the, the forces that oppose you on the outside. So that could be rent, right? That could be, you know, uh, the laws of the government, right? Could be your neighbors. They're, 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 they're people who oppose you from the outside, okay? But then a person also has to reconcile with the forces within themselves that oppose them, okay? So they're the outside forces that oppose you, and they're the inside forces that oppose you, all right? Now, with this in mind, with this in mind, I want to go back to Yaakov Avinu, right? So, so we're talking about this, this landmark confrontation between Yehuda and Yosef, okay? And, and remember what they represent. Yosef is the one, he's the king, he's the one who represents never making a mistake, being perfect. We say Yosef Atzadik, like the righteous one, like the perfect one. Then we have Yehuda, who's the one who makes mistakes, but goes back and fixes them. Now, again, if you were to ask me which one does the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, Mashiach ben David, who... Which one does he descend from, the perfect one or the one who makes mistakes and fixes them? I would tell you the perfect one. Of course, it's obvious, except that's not what it is. It's the person who makes mistakes and fixes them. That's the one who, who Mashiach ben David comes from. Okay. Now listen to this. They're both descendants of Yaakov Avinu, of Jacob. Now, Jacob has a wrestling match, famously, with an angel. And all the sources tell you that the angel is the, the Sar Shel Esav, the ministering angel of his twin brother who wants to kill him. So that represents all of the forces outside of us who are opposing us from the outside. Okay? But there's a less well-known interpretation of this wrestling match, which is that Yaakov, it says in the Torah, was left all alone, and he wrestled with a man. But the language that it uses for a man, Yaakov himself is referred to by that same word, ish, at a different place. So in other words, it suggests, and this is the... Just another, just another facet of understanding this event, right? Is that Yaakov was wrestling with himself, with the forces within himself. And the Zohar brings that, that he's wrestling with the dark forces within himself. Okay? So now, based on that, this is not just me talking, but based on that, I want to say the following thing. Since these children came from Yaakov, since these children came from within Yaakov, right? Yehuda 
and Yosef that this wrestling match is a wrestling match that all of us have within ourselves, which is in that aspect of the side of us. Remember, we all have a piece of God within us, which means we have an aspect of perfection within us, but we also have our own humanity, the side of us that messes up all the time. And there's a wrestling match within every single one of us between those two forces. And now comes the point where Yehuda, the one who makes mistakes, is approaching Yosef, the one who never makes any mistakes. In other words, in this wrestling match, the side of us which is very fallible has to approach the side of us which is perfect. Do you know what that means? That means the side of us that gives up too easily, that quits and then calls it a great act of faith, that doesn't want to put in the work, that side of us has to face up to the perfect side of ourselves and says, you know what? I have to hold my, myself accountable to the fact that I can do more and I'm not doing more. But the other side is also true. Because Yosef embraces Yehuda. The side of ourselves which is perfect has to come off its high horse and has to look at the Yehuda within us the fallible aspect within us and say, you know something? Maybe I'm not so perfect. Maybe I'm not so perfect and I have to forgive myself for not being so perfect and I have to be real. So do you hear how Yosef and Yehuda are getting it together? And Yosef and Yehuda are that internal wrestling match within Yaakov, and remember, Yaakov's name is Israel, within all of us. The part of us which can do better and must do better, and the part of us that says, you know something, you're not so perfect, relax. Relax, you're not so perfect. Be real. And we have to combine those two aspects of ourselves together And we have to work together because otherwise we're living in a fantasy land. There's so many people who are, who they're either blind to their own mistakes. They understand the the Yosef within them, but not the Huda within them. Or they're blind to the higher aspects of themselves. They think, oh, I'm just a mess up. I just mess up all the time. And so they're, they're into the Yehuda part of themselves, but they're blind to the Yosef side of themselves. But Torah is all about coherence and integration, bringing heaven and earth together. We have to combine both of these aspects of ourselves and have them complement each other, have each side of ourselves pick up the other side of ourselves so that when we're down, we can say, you know what, I can do better. And we have the higher aspect of ourselves reassure the mistake-prone part of ourselves and say, hey, look, no, 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 I'm here. You can do better. We're going to try again. That's Yosef lifting up Yehuda. 
right? But then we can't get arrogant and, and just sort of like be blind and live in la-la land. Like, you know what? If it's not perfect, I don't want to do it at all. I'll tell you something, and this is, this is a generational shift, but anyone out there who wants to get married who's not married, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. Will you please go out on some dates? I mean, who, who are you fooling? What, what, what are you doing exactly? I, I have talked to people who literally will not go out on a date. Now, look, I'm not saying that I'm some sort of prophet and I've found your soulmate and you must sit down with them because I've told you to sit down with them. I'm not saying any of those things. But a cup of coffee, for goodness sakes? Like, I just don't understand it. And it, I've seen this many times already. I don't, I don't understand what's going on with, 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 with the present generation in terms of that. Do you really think that an online summary or three sentences from someone on the phone is going to completely and accurately give you a full understanding of who that person is? I mean, that's, that's sort of ridiculous, right? Okay. I, I want to do better, personally. I personally want to do better. I know that every time that we wake up, that God is expressing confidence in us that we can accomplish more, that we can do more. Remember, there's a little aspect of infinity within us, and it never gets exhausted. No matter how old you are, no matter how low you are, it never gets exhausted. The opportunities to try again and to do even better are endless. And we, we, we have to, we, we, we have to own up to that and to be, and, 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 and to be true to that aspect of ourselves in the world. Because otherwise, what are we doing here? Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.